loving like talking with you guys and really learning about what life is like. My dream is to give the rights, give the freedom to the women of my country. How can I get married? It's everybody's right. Your family or your freedom. There's more to my story. There's more to our story. There's more to my story. Hey, I'm your host, Sarah Little, and you're listening to the More to Her Story podcast. You'll hear from journalists, thought leaders, social entrepreneurs, and of course, girls who are changing the game in their countries and communities. Thanks for choosing to be a part of the conversation, and I'll see you inside. Afra Nasser is a multi-award winning journalist and blogger from Yemen, currently residing in Sweden. In 2017, Afra won the Committee to Protect Journalists International Press Freedom Award. She's been named by BBC as one of the 100 women who have changed the world and has been featured three times as one of the 100 most influential Arabs by Arabian Business Magazine. Afra's blog, created during Yemen's 2011 Arab Spring Uprising, has won her the recognition of CNN and Al Monitor as one of the most influential blogs in the Middle East. Afra's currently working as the primary research analyst on Yemen at Human Rights Watch. I'm really excited for you guys to hear today's incredible conversation. Afra, thank you for being here. My pleasure. How I first start usually all of my podcasts is by asking my guest, you, um, a question about your faith and how your faith has, in whatever way that you conceptualize the word faith, how has your faith informed who you are and what you do in the world? I grew up in a, in a Muslim family, uh, but I would say I grew up in a secular uh, household. So my, especially my mother, she was very, um, she placed in me and my sister, like human values that are, I would say, uh, l- larger or overlaps with all uh, religions and not, not necessarily, uh, you know, limited in, in Islam. But uh, so we have like a great saying in Islam that says, uh, uh, like your faith uh, is built on how you treat uh, other humans. Hmm. Uh, and I think that is something my mom really t- taught me early on that you have to treat people with respect and you know respect their rights also uh and and that i think that influenced me uh, being interested in humans human stories writing and and just interacting with other humans and and then you know one thing led to another and i'm now in this human rights uh, work and and i i can't see myself doing anything else um I uh, it shaped a huge part of my life, and this is why I'm also like talking to you. Like when I get an email, like asking me, like, can you come and talk? And I like, I get excited because I feel it's free therapy, <laughs> <laughs> and 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 the, sometimes the best therapy you get is just talking to a friend, and I feel that's an opportunity I I wouldn't say no to um yeah so thank you so much for the opportunity of course um it's amazing how you know like you said what we're taught as kids 
about spirituality, about faith, about religion, maybe goes on to inform like our experiences as adults and what we believe um, about the world and who we are and our place in the world. So it's really interesting that that you've now chosen this path to defend human rights and advocate for human rights based on a lot of like what you learned yeah. about faith. Um, yeah. But you you grew up in Al Raqqa's neighborhood in yes. Sanaa, in Yemen's Correct. capital. Um, and now you live in Stockholm, Sweden, in exile. It's such a weird word. It's such a <laughs> strange thing to say. Um, yeah. Can can you describe your life, Afra, um, growing up in Sanaa, your childhood and adolescence before the war? Mm -hmm. Can you mm -hmm. paint a picture of that? I, I will be very frank. I, 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 in other interviews, I used to kind of pretend that it was a happy uh, childhood, but, but now, I don't know, I feel I'm in a different place where I, I would just say it was very challenging uh, childhood. And even when I refer that I'm, I'm, I'm from Harat al-Raqqas in Sana'a, uh, it's actually out of uh, you know, frustration because of the war and the regionalism. So if you say, like, while the war going on, if you say you're from the north or south, or mm -hmm. you're already boxed in one, Hmm. You're, if you're with this or that, the polarization is really wide. So, so the war made me really go back to my root, which is the that neighborhood, and that eases the discussion with, with especially with other Yemenis that oh, she's she's like just into her childhood memories, but she's not about, you know, she does she's not aggressive like I am with this uh, group against that group, and, hmm. uh, and but. Uh, also, like I get very often uh, the comments that, oh, you're so proud of Harat al-Raqqas. And I'm like, I'm, I'm proud I survived Harat al-Raqqas. not like I'm mm. Because it's a, it's a uh, you know, hardworking middle class uh, area. I mean, that whole downtown, uh, Harat al-Raqqas, at diary, it's all about like, you know, hardworking people. Even in like in the capital, uh, Sana'a, you would have, like one area enjoying more privileges than the other. So uh, if you go to Hadda, Asbahi, the other neighborhoods where rich people live, that was like a dream. Like for me, it was a dream to leave Harat al-Raqqas and, and go to, you know, the rich uh, places. Mm. And now I'm in Stockholm, so that, <laughs> so it's, it's just it's just weird. But uh, and not many people ask me this question actually. So thank you, Sarah. The childhood was challenging because of poverty, abusive father, um, lack of legal protection to my mother who was seeking divorce. So she was like going around courts for five years hmm. uh, trying to get divorce. Um, Is that, that illegal for a woman to do that, to initiate It's divorce? just legally the law is discriminative. Okay. against women so the law pro like favors men's wishes words even so if a, a woman would go to court uh and say i want divorce uh we don't have that like the 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 the, the husband should say okay i'll divorce her so okay. um but in other uh you know countries islamic countries or like countries that have Islamic Sharia uh, law, for example, Egypt, 
Uh, women campaigners worked really hard a long time ago, and there is something called khulla, which means basically you you un unstall <laughs> unstall your your husband. Okay, but yeah. but you, you have to give away so many rights hmm. in order to get your freedom. So my mom was not in Egypt. She was in Yemen. And, and the law would say that, uh, you know, according to the procedures, um, you have six months or I don't know how, how, how I can't remember exactly, but you have like a specific period where you have to go to your uh, husband's house um, and try to fix things. And, mm. and then you like as a as a as a wife you have to like appeal against that so that takes so long time yeah. and and takes so much money also yeah. um so i still remember uh, me and my sister like even sharing one egg uh as a breakfast wow. uh, because we couldn't every time i eat eggs now i i just feel like how mad i am against just poverty I wish poverty um, poverty mm. should be illegal. I don't know how to, how to say it. Just economic hardships in Yemen go way back before the war. Like it's 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 uh, Yemen for a long time was the ranked was ranked as the poorest Arab uh, nation, and today it's the world's worst, largest humanitarian crisis. Yeah. So it just it 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 breaks my heart. Like if 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 at that time at like when it was not a war, like we lived in this challenging childhood. So I can't imagine how life it is now for children in Yemen. It's just absolute hardship. Like you're just fighting for your survival every day. It just it's it's beyond what we can imagine unless you have gone through it or or at least close to that experience. I mean, it sounds like it, there was a lot of challenges growing up um, for a number of reasons, but I mean, do you have any positive memories? In, prover in poverty, there is a blessing also. Mm. Like uh, the way that uh, you find solidarity among ordinary people on a daily basis, it's just amazing. Mm. Um, uh, Yemenis tend to be so generous uh, with the outsider or a foreigner or, their neighbor or because they know what it's like to be hungry hmm. uh, and thirsty and 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 not having anything so a lot of people go and visit Yemen briefly and come back and they just get mesmerized uh, because everywhere it's like it's you can't see poverty but at the same time there is so much generosity hmm. and it, it, it's something I always reflect on here in Sweden uh, as Sweden enjoys a huge you know, economy, but, but very often, I wouldn't say all the time, but very often when I go to visit other Swedes' houses, I would find just tiny food or like just really like, you know, the portions are, it just makes me remember uh, wow. Yemen. Yeah. Uh, like how so like interesting how, how poor and generous Yemen is you know I found that to be true in some of the like most um I don't even know the word most desperate maybe contexts of people who just don't have much um they have very little and uh, you know in refugee camps uh where you know you visit people and it's like the, like you say the, the most generous hearted people 
ever you'll find there. Um, and it is this interesting juxtaposition of like, of abundance and scarcity. Security plays a huge role. Uh, so the less secure you feel, the, 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 the more you know this might be your last day hmm. uh, in life. And then you have to just live it to the fullest and, and, and yeah. And, and I think that's what that's the difference between here and there, or I, I don't know what's here and there, but uh, but uh, in my experience uh, in Sweden, uh, life is just extremely secure. So you can, you can really plan next year, this date, where you will be, what you, you will be doing, which mm. is not the case in, in Yemen or in many, many parts in the Middle East. Yeah, uh, that's but, a good way to think about it. Yeah, I've never yeah. thought about it that way. So can you just briefly, you know, sum briefly, but summarize um, for those who may not be totally familiar with the conflict in Yemen um, that's been ongoing since 2014. And as you said, you know, called by the UN, the largest, the world's largest humanitarian crisis. Um, can you summarize in a few words, you know, what is it about? Who is fighting whom? Yeah. Why is it still happening? So very briefly, uh, if, if you think the war began in 2015 or 2014 uh, in Yemen, think again. Um, the war or the, the, what's happening in Yemen has roots back way back in 2011. So when the, the Arab uprisings, what we call today the Arab Spring, Yemen had uh, its revolution in 2011, and, and Ali Abdullah Saleh, the president back then, he was toppled, uh, but at the same time, he was given, uh, how do you say, it? Uh, impunity or mm -hmm. impunity? No, impunity. Yeah. Uh, to, to give power uh, while he will get protection from any prosecution. So there was never transitional justice. Uh, process that happened after the uprising. So that gave a space for like a vacuum of power where, uh, you know, domestic political actors started fighting each other over power. Uh, mm -hmm. And one of them are the Houthi armed group that today uh, occupy um, uh, or took control of Sana'a, uh, the capital. Uh, they uh, become uh, um, allies with Ali Abdullah Saleh, who wanted mm. to take revenge against people who toppled him. Mm -hmm. And so in 2014, first, like there was a war against transitional justice, let's say. Uh, it's so many details, like to, no, we, we will not have time now to tell you like who were responsible, but one of them was the international community, actually. So, uh, that was one milestone. And then there was 2014, Ali Abdullah Saleh with the Houthi armed group uh, went to Sana'a and seized all the uh, you know, state uh, institutions and, and tried to topple, uh, or like it was an attempt coup against uh, the president, Abdurrahman Mansour Hadi, who was, go who was replacing uh, Saleh. He fled to Saudi Arabia, and according to Saudi Arabia, he sought uh, uh, Saudi Arabia to intervene. Uh, and the Saudis made a coalition and declared the war from, um, from DC, actually, from the US in 2015. 
which tells tells you a huge deal about the U.S. role and and backing uh, mm. the conflict. So what started as civil war is related to like with international actors mm -hmm. getting involved. Mm -hmm. uh, so since 2015, uh, the Saudi-led coalition, uh, with a with a like a, with a great partnership with the UAE, have been uh, in war in in Yemen. Mm -hmm. um, but like the war has gone through so many periods, and right now we are in a in a period where Houthis are firing missiles against. Uh, uh, Saudi Arabia and also refusing uh, peace initiatives or peace proposals, uh, which feels mm. like we are installmates, uh, and and it's just. But during all this these periods, one thing for sure is that the the scale of of of, of the number of victims of the unlawful airstrikes uh, against civilians. Uh, sites, homes, markets, hospitals, uh, schools, um, and also the, the blockade. Uh, logistically, it's it's been extremely difficult to get food shipment, medicine by all parties. That has exacerbated the humanitarian crisis on the ground, which I was just telling you, like even before the war, it's been always really difficult and tough. Mm. Yeah. Um, now we've reached a level where I think T terrorism is just stripping away hope from people uh, now in Yemen we're beyond you know victims and mm. the death toll uh, of, of the war but we're like we're stripping away hopes uh, of the new generation uh, mm. life has become unbearable and you can't plan anything you can't you can't see light uh, mm. um, so there seems to be no end in sight. And the international community is trying to persuade the Houthis, but I really don't know, like for how long we can be in this like deadlock or, yeah, don't know. yeah. And Alfred, you, you started blogging to document the, the rise, as you were saying, of the Arab Spring Revolution in 2011. Um, which is when you had then had to go into to exile in Sweden because you were no longer safe in Yemen, right? It, it was by accident. I didn't okay. really plan it to come here, but uh, it, correct. I started blogging uh, in 2010, end of 2010, uh, and then with the uprising, but I was working as a journalist uh, okay. already. Yeah. Yeah. And I think of, and I know this isn't, you know, a totally accurate comparison, but I think a little bit of Malala, who who had to you know like when she was secretly blogging um under taliban rule in afghanistan and the international press picked it up and then she obviously ended up having to leave um but i i think of just you know the courage um and not only the courage but just the willpower that one has to have in order to to do something like that because it is you know truly in a way risking your life to do that would you say yeah. that? Would you agree with that? Yeah, it, it, I was protesting at home uh, in the street, like because my family were against me writing publicly. So I would say there are many Afrahs in Yemen that they want to write and express their opinions and 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 come with their face like publicly, but uh, but 
very often uh, it, the oppression starts inside our homes uh so but you know parents family members are like very protective and they know it's going to be like dangerous for you and uh but at that time i was like really like in fight and discussion not a discussion just debating all the time at home uh trying to convince my family members how they were supporting dictatorship if they were support mm. because some of them had sympathy for ali abdullah saleh so mm. it, it was like a very politically you know just vibrant uh situation or a period in, in yemen so it it felt natural like i yani now you say malala and i'm like what it's, <laughs> it's like i i loved writing i mm. my, my mom tried to make me work as a banker because she used to work as a banker and i was telling her like i'm going to die every day in a bank like i can't i i love writing i uh, i wanted uh, to become a writer to become a journalist to become a novelist Mm. like whatever way i can just make money of writing that i, I was into mm. um, and then um because of the censorship in the in the uh, newspaper i was working in i started uh, blogging um, mm. and publishing the stuff that i couldn't publish in the newspaper and I, and then it was so quick like the the developments were so quick and and then i realized i was uh, becoming you know an english speaking media outlet um because at that time there was only uh, uh um yemen times and mm-hmm. yemen observer i was working in yemen observer so and then afrahnas blog became as if the the the, the third you know uh, just recently i started also realizing because i have ethiopian uh, root and uh, so my grandmothers are ethiopian i was born mm. in ethiopia mm. and i always like growing up i was like in yemen I, like i was called you're ethiopian but when I, when we go back to ethiopia no you're yemeni so i mm. never really belonged somewhere uh, so blogging and discussing Yemeni politics back then I I didn't have any of like you know the awareness and information that I have today or mm-hmm. you know I didn't read history as I I I I I do today but anyway that confidence and that stubbornness was actually me trying to say to I don't know the community the society that I'm more Yemeni than you are mm. um, so that was also one of the motives of me like you know just 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 uh, focusing um and extensively writing about yemen when when you talk about your love of writing i can see your face just light up <laughs> um and you've used your writing to affect change on you know very large scales how how did that love of writing come about What, like, where did it come from like did you always love writing i don't know really like but i i remember one time our like maybe we were i don't know 7 8 9 uh our tv did not work uh, and my mom did not have money to go and fix it 
So we started reading magazines just to kill time instead of, and then, uh, you know, relatives come, and uncle X, Z, they come and we tell them about what we read. It, it used to be just magazines like women fashion magazine. And then, uh, for example, Ammu Hamid, uh, my uncle Hamid used to bring better magazines to us. So next time he comes, he would give us uh, um, intellectual magazines. And it comes to my mind now, Al Arabi magazine, which is like a very steamed uh, magazine uh, produced from Al Kuwait. Hmm. And it's very cheap in Yemen, even though it's like dense and, and, and it's expensive in other countries, but they have this understanding that Yemeni uh, readers will not have they, they wouldn't afford uh, the, the high price. So it was cheap. So Am Muhammad used to bring that. And we started reading, reading, reading. And, and I just saw myself in that. So this magazine now is like 60 years old. Uh, so I started reading when I was 14. And then by the time I graduated from college, I got an invitation to attend one of their uh, seminars or conferences. Wow in 2009 and I was the youngest in that uh, seminar so I, I remember that period really uh, formed my passion to mm. uh, to writing and reading it sounds like it was also a, a pretty natural transition to journalism yeah. from just writing and reading um, yeah yeah and since I was looking this up and I guess since 2015, the Office of the High Commissioner for Human Rights has documented at least 357 human rights abuses against journalists in Yemen. So I think it's safe to say that journalism is not a risk-free job, no. <laughs> nor is it always a rewarding job, right, depending on the type of journalism that you do. Um, it's, it's like all warring parties will, will fight over everything, but they will agree, let's make life help for journalists. Mm. Uh, and, and the problem is when you are independent, you will be a target of all the parties. Mm. So it's it's just so difficult to be independent, critical uh, voice alone. Yeah. And, and I think a lot of journalists like feel and tell me if you agree with this, but I feel like a lot of journalists feel like they are called to the profession, like they can't not do it, especially if they see injustice happening around them in their own country. Yeah. Um, and so I'm wondering, do you resonate with that feeling as well? Do you think yeah. that you would have I, been a journalist if you hadn't been born and raised in Yemen? It's it's like a disease. And the only medicine is just to to, to do this disease. Like it's it's like that uh, here Canada or in Arabic we say like you you have to heal your wound with what really started the the wound mm. uh, begin with. Um, yeah, I, I don't know what I, I would happen. I, so today I work as the Yemen researcher in Human Rights Watch. Uh, Mashallah. <laughs> Mashallah. It's an organization I never imagined I would join. Never, never, never. Um, and, you know, it, it comes to my mind, uh, uh, Frida Kello, uh, the, the Mexican painter, uh, she was so passionate about mm. painting and 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 she had like really feminist you know philosophy behind her portraits but in in every portrait there is something that you you can discuss and and, and talk about and it, it it represents one period of her life and uh 
and and uh, I used not anymore, but I used to have uh, one of her pictures because I just moved to another uh, apartment. Uh, I need to print it again. Uh, she 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 was uh, laying down on on her uh, you know bed with all the the uh, how do you say gyps in Arabic? We say gyps like you know bondage uh, yeah. uh, around her back, her stomach, mm -hmm. and still painting. Um, wow. and I think this is how it is. Like it's, it, it feels like, um, it's something you will do like even in your darkest moment. And I think this is why I was drawn to, uh, human rights watch and even human rights watch. So something in me is that despite the difficulties and, and being in forced exile in, in Sweden, I continued writing and, despite being you know in, in a long distant relationship with Yemen yeah I, I still continued writing that was um challenging but I couldn't see myself doing anything else really it was the 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 light that really helped me get through so many dark moments hmm. while I was doing some research on you um I came across one of your blog posts titled journalist or activist <laughs> and this is a topic and actually a question that's been on my mind recently um because as you know i care deeply about women's rights around the world and you posed a question in your article um th that i had never thought of before which is why are men never asked that question it's always the women journalists being asked are you a journalist or are you an activist mm. um and i'm wondering if you could elaborate a little bit on that point like why why do you think it's um less less women or less men and more women being asked that and also the point about um we must be honest but not impartial mm. uh, i think that was really powerful and it reminds me a little bit of when christian amanpour talks about we must be truthful but not neutral yeah correct so at first uh there are so many uh, expectations and stereotypes about what uh, women in media uh, are about. Mm -hmm. uh, so when I started journalism in 2008 uh, or nine, eight, eight, and like I was expected to write about soft topics, mm. write about food, about fashion, family. I was like, what about politics? They were like, no, that's that's going to be dangerous and. It's a hazard profession, and, and that these topics are only for men. I was like, what do you mean? So I, I would go in discussion with my mother, my you know family members, uh, even my chief editor. Uh, he was trying to tell me, like, you, you write good, but don't write for now politics. Write mm. about social, cultural. And I, so in every discussion I would have, like there is this idea that uh, if, if you get into trouble, uh, there is uh, um, m like more negative consequences for you as a, as a female than mm -hmm. for a, a male. And very often it's like, if you're kidnapped, you will get raped and, and pregnant. And uh, like, they have all these, um, things to threaten you with restrictions like, yeah yeah to shock you with to try to make you go away from from what men are more capable of doing and more yeah. capable of facing 
Um, so, but of course, I didn't buy all of that. I was like, like, no, I, I, I don't care about these limitations. They're actually irrational to me. Like, there is nothing me I can't do as as another male. Um, and even male journalists, why they don't write about fashion and and and, and, and culture and. So I, I didn't really care about that. And this is why I'm like, you know, I am where I am now with, with the topics that I'm, I'm writing about. Uh, but um, but with like, you always face another stereotype, another expectation. So mm. the last ones were like, the more I was going to uh, like seminars and speaking as, as a journalist, um, because I have like, I deeply care about the things that I will say. I would never say things like reading them or just copy pasting stuff. Mm -hmm. Like I am deeply involved in the issues. I follow like every details. And then if I am in a, in a seminar today, I'm not gonna say the same thing that I said yesterday. Um, things keep changing and I want to give my insight from like a really fresh look. Um, so I even stopped reading New York Times, Washington Post <laughs> and all of it because I feel they, they, they like, you know, they, they narrow my vision. Hmm. Wow. Uh, and, yeah. and it's like, just because you say something original, it doesn't mean yeah. it's wrong. Hmm. Just because it's, it does not. It's not like a copy paste of what New York Times said. Doesn't mean it's wrong. Right. So you have to say your voice. You have to give yeah your your opinion as it matters to you, uh, not as it, it would matter like how people will receive it. No, like this is this is how the truth I say. This is what is. This is what does matter to my family in Yemen, to my friends, to their parents, to. I get so yeah yeah it's a good subject so, to get heated about so so and then if you if you show that emotion if you mm -hmm. show that human connection to the topics you you're talking about you get called like you're you're activist as if it's wow. it's it's become like they make you this is what I feel uh they make you feel uh go a less rank from a, an objective uh journalist Hmm. And and I think that that type of journalism is just boring. Um, I'm I'm not interested in in you know the, I, I used to say like Western journalism or international uh, media, but no, I, like let's say who they are. It's the Guardian, the New York Times, the Washington. Yeah. You, you know that type of journalism for me, it's 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 very often it's boring. Um, I, I, I have the, 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 the opportunity to speak to some of the journalists working there when they interview me about Yemen. And I, I like, I'm, I'm not shy to tell them this. And I tell them like about the latest updates that mm -hmm. I know. Um, and I hope I'm contributing to, uh, their journalism, but it's okay to be journalist and respected for your journalism while being emotional and showing, you know, human connection to the topics that you are talking. Um, and men, they don't get these kind of boxing that you're mm. you're activist or they're they're not monitored in the way that we are. I think, um, mm. and they have more 
freedom to to do things more than what we do for us we're we're always watched to just demoralized i feel Yeah, you make so many good points. And I was having a conversation with someone about this yesterday, actually, and um, not about this exact thing of of activism versus journalism or objectivity versus subjectivity. But um, I, I asked this person, I said, so what stories are considered newsworthy? Like, it, like, how do you decide, you know, with so many stories in the world every day around important issues that are happening? Um, yeah. And, you know, for you, I mean, Yemen, you were talking earlier about how Yemen was for a long time ranked the poorest country in the Middle East. And they're still in a, in a war. And despite unbelievable challenges, you know, Yemeni people themselves are generous and hardworking and resilient, good people. Right. Um, and so. And those two realities live alongside each other. And so how do you, as a, as a journalist, as a researcher, as someone who cares deeply about Yemen and its people, how, how do you um, decide what kinds of stories have the capacity to break through the noise of the yeah. world um, and show not only the struggle, but also the successes and the goodness of Yemeni people? It's very, very difficult. Uh, and I, I, I had this discussion with uh, a friend working in BBC and we would joke like, joke like if it's, uh, one person killed in Belgium, it becomes breaking news. But 100 person in Yemen, yeah, that, that could be a bit. But one in Yemen, no, it's not going to be a breaking. Hmm. You have to have like one that equals 100, you know, that kind of like headlines yeah. that will grab the headlines. Um, but I think there is a lot of work to be done inside uh, editorial uh, rooms. Hmm. Uh, um, it's, it's, it's really about the editorial choices from, you know, the chief editor, the production team, um, and unfortunately, most of these big media outlets are politically, um, they have their own political agenda. Uh, take, for example, Al Jazeera. Uh, it's two, you know, two different messages under one house. Like mm-hmm. the Al Jazeera Arabic has different message. Al Jazeera English has different, but it's still the one house, which is, you know, they have like a Qatar uh, political agenda. Mm-hmm. So uh, at the beginning of the conflict in Yemen, Qatar was part of the Saudi-led coalition. And that really influenced their uh, media coverage. Mm-hmm. Uh, they, were, they were trying not to... Um, to cover about the Saudi-led coalition uh, violations, uh, yeah. abuses. Uh, but then once Qatar left that coalition, uh, it was actually, it was one of the best things that happened to the, the humanitarian catastrophe in Yemen. Because Al Jazeera started finally, like had freedom to continuously uh, cover the situation there. and. And then, you know, like a few years later, Jamal Khashoggi was, was killed. And this is what I'm telling you. It's, it's really about the editorial um, the team decision because once Jamal Khashoggi killed, there was a huge scrutiny to what Saudi Arabia is doing in Yemen. Hmm. Uh, like for the first time, New York Times had a whole uh, uh, cover page of... Uh, 
like a, a very powerful image of, of, of a dying child from Yemen hmm. uh, who had like a skeleton uh, body and, and it, it was graphic, but it tells you also about how, how like, you know, the dynamics between these states and, and how politically things are changing because what, what Saudi Arabia did with that heinous crime of mm-hmm. killing Jamal Khashoggi really um, uh, made a lot of diplomatic ties go in crisis with Saudi Arabia. Yeah. So that really uh, influenced how how media coverage would, would, would go. But for us, for, for me as Yemeni uh, journalist at that time and, and so many Yemeni activists and, and, and Yemenis working in the civil society organization, Yemen has, has always been like the most important topic um, for us. But, but very often I reflect, even if I was not Yemeni, I would, I would have covered Yemen I, because, mm. because I think from journalistic perspective, there is a niche. Uh, that you need to fill uh, scholarly it's uh, stimulating yeah it's it's, it's you know it's, the, it's a mysterious place and and you will you will get fun like you know <laughs> covering and working on on, on that area uh, yeah. so i i could uh, you know go on tv or or talk in seminars about um, you know, how is the situation for, let's say, human rights defenders in the Middle East? Because very, like, th- th- there have been many, uh, you know, times when, uh, like, human rights defenders that we know as friends uh, are behind bar. For example, now Mahinur al-Masri in Egypt, she's still in prison since 2019. Hmm. Um, and it's just shocking. Uh, but, yeah. but, but, you know, like, but I try to take these opportunities to speak about Yemen because nobody will, will do. Have you read the book Our Women on the Ground? Uh, I came across it, but I did not read it. Okay. Um, and for those of you who don't know, it's it's a non it's an anthology of nonfiction stories um, by Arab female journalists and their unique experiences and challenges um, covering the region. So, as you speak, Afra, I'm I'm wondering. Um, what are some of your, if, if you have any, you know, I'm sure, I mean, I'm sure, sure you do, but any unique um, experiences or challenges reporting on Yemen as a woman that maybe you can share? So, okay, locally inside Yemen, uh, as like a Yemeni male fellow would expect me not having an opinion. Uh, I, the status of women in Yemen is so distressing. Uh, it's so bad. It's so tragic. Mm-hmm. Uh, I come from a very privileged background in comparison to the majority in Yemen, and yet uh, my education, my you know, my knowledge, my expertise, very very often uh, is mm-hmm. not treated with uh, the same perception of of. Yeah. I don't have this. I will not get the same treatment if it was uh, going to be another uh, male uh, Yemeni uh, uh, human rights defender or, or slash journalist or researcher. Uh, that's one thing. And then the other thing, uh, internationally, I find it difficult when there is a monopoly of uh, 
you know, explaining Yemen and discussing Yemen uh, by um, foreign Yemen experts. Uh, that has been challenging, not only for me, but for other, like for many other Yemenis who don't even have the privilege to, or like they don't dare to mention that because there is a huge cost to it. Um, if you criticize another, um, you know, foreign Yemen expert working on this or that organization or this or that uh, media outlet, um, you will you will you will limit your opportunities to other international opportunities. Hmm. So, the like the monopoly of discussion about Yemen. For example, there is like I've seen this uh, several times uh, a panel about Yemen where there is no Yemeni voice in that panel. It's very often like yeah. you know like international scholars talking about Yemen without including Yemenis. Right. And I find that really troubling. Yeah. And it, it just include them. I'm not saying like put the panel, all the panel, uh, just Yemenis, but include. So this is what I'm telling you, the monopoly of discussion. Yeah. Um, that has been uh, a challenge. Uh, yeah. Yeah. What a concept, including a person from that country talking about their own country. <laughs> it has happened with, you know, uh, colleagues from Syria, uh, Egypt, so it does happen. Palestine, it does Iraq. So you will find a, a, a panel discussion about Yazidi women in Iraq where there's no, no Iraqi speaker. I'm like, wow. what? Why? Yeah, it's crazy. You would think in 2021 we would have a better idea of how to facilitate those conversations. But I mean, Ye Yemen has. Uh, ranked in the in the world economic forums global gender gap index um last they've ranked last for 13 consecutive years mm -hmm. um and i'm sure you know the war has contributed a lot to that forcing a lot of kids particularly girls out of school um and i think that at least for me sometimes i feel like there's this sense that women and girls um in any given country but more so countries affected by war and conflict um are simply victims um, and that, you know, putting them and their needs at the forefront of the, the global agenda is not important or productive. Um, and I don't think that's true um, mm -hmm. because studies show that, you know, the more girls who are educated in a given country, the more that country's GDP increases and a lot of other, you know, things that point to the the need for for women and girls uh, to be prioritized. And so I'm just wondering, you know, what is your sense of some of the biggest needs of Yemeni women and girls today? Mm. Um, and how can the international community help push that agenda forward so that mm. their needs are prioritized? It's just so sad that Yemeni women are not included in, in and the many opportunities for peace talks, I think if they were included in a sufficient way, we would have been in a different uh, hmm. period now in, in, in the conflict. So look, it's been always difficult for, for women, but the violations, uh, uh, the gender-based violations that we see today in the war are in some areas are unprecedented, things we've, we did not see even before. 
So we have an increasing uh, reports and, and even reports coming to us, uh, to me and Human Rights Watch, uh, uh, women, whether they are human rights defenders or just uh, try to express their dissent to uh, the Houthis, uh, more and more women are being targeted, uh, facing detention, torture in detention. Uh, some of the mistreatment and, 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 and torture are just so horrific. Mm. Uh, uh, and, and right now I'm working on uh, publishing one statement about Antasar um, al-Hamadi. She's a Yemeni model and actress uh, in Sana'a. Uh, mm. she's, she's only 20 years old, uh, but she, she, she loves modeling. There are plenty of pictures of her. Uh, modeling uh, traditionally Yemeni. Uh, if she uh, needs any advice, I model as well in New York. I could give her some advice. <laughs> I wish, I wish, I wish I could connect you uh, uh, with each other, but unfortunately, she's been in detention, oh, wow. uh, facing unfair trial uh, in Sana'a, in in uh, in prison controlled by the Houthi armed group. Uh, and uh, she's been threatened by virginity test. Wow. Uh, she's the breadwinner of her family. Her father uh, and brother are uh, suffering from uh, some mental uh, issues. Uh, her mother doesn't work. She's the only you know, person that was uh, making income for her uh, family. Mm-hmm. And, and uh, she is one uh, that was okay with publicizing her case, but there are many other women that fear the stigma and fear the, you know, the social consequences if mm. they speak out about the mistreatment, the the detention, the torture, the rape, the sexual violence they they faced. Uh, so uh, it's it's been terrible, terrible. It it, it is. Um, you know, like the status of women, I think, are a great reflection of the what's going on in the community as a whole. If if women are are treated this way and excluded, there is no safe. By the way, no safe place for women anywhere in Yemen. Not only under the Houthi uh, in the Houthi uh, controlled areas, but in other places, even like women IDPs, internally displaced women. Uh, there there are stories that are just shocking. Uh, being sexually uh, harassed and 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 little children being raped and uh, we don't have like the accurate statistics and and for me one case is more than enough like it's just so like it's just so unacceptable even if it's just one case um, but uh, you know data collection and statistics in Yemen have been really difficult uh, under the ongoing war. But I'm telling you, there is no safe space, uh, a safe place for women uh, in Yemen. But and yet, uh, in in during peace uh, negotiation, peace talks, if you, if you if you dismiss half of the society and and try to come up with a plan, like it it it's just irrational to me. It's illogical. How could you dismiss half of the society? So women are not included in these uh, peace talks. Uh, just recently, for example, there were like un, um, 
unadvertised or how how do you say un, it, like not it was not publicly yeah. um, uh, presented but uh, the Omanis were in peace talks with uh, Oman was in peace talks in, in Sana'a uh, but it has fallen uh, apart like and this is just the latest episode of 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 how the, the the failing uh you know uh failing participation of of like exclusion let's say women are being just excluded from uh these vital talks we will we will not have a durable lasting peace if women are not included it just that, that's how history tells us. Uh, that's how Yemenis, uh, Yemen, Yemeni women, if you talk to them, that's what they will tell you. So despite these uh, challenges, women have been, you know, some of the best activists in Yemen are women. Some of the, the, the best aid workers are women. Some of the, the best community leaders negotiating the release of, of detainees are women uh, going from one tribe to another. So... Uh, it's very important to include them, and and I think this is where the international community can have like a, you know, like a like a strong quota. If let's say tomorrow there is peace talks here in in Sweden, uh, Sweden and other, uh, especially like you know, uh, women's rights friendly states, uh, usually the Nordic, and and they have like really good reputation uh, mm-hmm. among the parties in Yemen. They should like very like they should be very clear that uh, these seats should be filled by women. Bring your women. Mm. Uh, mm. I think this is one, just one tiny step into including uh, women's political participation and in, mm. in, in the conflict resolution in Yemen. That's so good. Afra, you have accomplished so much and yet you remain so humble. Um, <laughs> Thank you. What words of encouragement or wisdom do you have for young aspiring journalists, um, especially women, young women journalists um, or activists that you want to share? Every time I have a new tips, you know, and and I don't like to say, no, I don't, you have to figure it out. No, I think, no, like we need to hear, you, you need to be curious to hear from so many people and but every time I have like a new <laughs> motto. So the last one, uh, and I tell this myself also, like is that never, never think of yourself that like you're finished process. Uh, because I think we as humans in our careers and our you know even personal lives, uh, we think we we know what we what we want, what we don't want, and it's like everything is clear. And I am and I know I have opinions, but, but no. Uh, every day is different and, mm. and and your unfinished process until the last day of your life mm. and and f- so feed that feed that with uh, being curious being thirsty and hungry for more information new information the pandemic really affected our passion and life I think and now there is the new uh, delta. Mm. And I'm 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 reading the news and I'm thinking like if I survived 2020 I can survive anything. I'm trying to have that attitude. Uh, but but yeah, I mean life is tough and your career will be tough and and but you have to also be tougher. I yeah. I love I love in depth 
in in anything I do. Like yeah. even if even if meeting a friend, I like to have like just deep conversation, not just superficial and and quick ones. And that reflected also in my in in my work. It all started with with one comment from um, Egyptian filmmaker. Um, what's his name? Yusuf Shaheen, Yusuf Shaheen, the Egyptian uh, filmmaker, late uh, genius uh, filmmaker. He said, if you want to be international, you have to be local. Hmm. And that that early on made me know also, like, if I want to make it to become an international journalist, I just have to zoom in in my local, uh, even Najib Mahfouz, the Egyptian uh, novelist, uh, even though he wrote about like you know the details of Egyptian families' uh, lives in 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 small neighborhoods, but mm-hmm. that made him uh, also international. So picking your your specialty, your area, um, I think the deeper you go, the the larger you become. Hmm. So good. Go go deeper into more. More yeah. of less. Yeah, yeah. More of less. So I have one question that I ask all of my guests at the end of the podcast. This is like, I can't believe we've already been talking for over an hour. So the, the last question that I ask is, what is the more to your story, Afra? This podcast is called More to Her Story. And there's more to everybody's stories than what we can see or hear on the outside. I it just, I think of all uh, Yemen. Uh, I think Yemen has been impoverished uh, uh, for so many years. Um, there is a lot of misconceptions, but but also so much misery, so much misery. And and I think, um, especially the international audience that watch us now, I just invite them to question what's their state's role and what's happening in Yemen. Uh, yes, uh, what happened in Yemen started a civil war, and Yemenis, you know, hold a huge responsibility of, like them fighting each other. Uh, but but there is also an international actor to it. Like I like to think that I'm an ambassador of Yemen. Like that's how I I I I love to think of like why I am obsessively talking about Yemen all the time. It's um, it's my country, but I think also it's the place where so many injustices uh, are happening. And I just invite our audience to question, to think, to ask, what's Denmark's role in that? What's the U.S.? How, how Trump administration had a role in what's happening in Yemen? How's Biden uh, lied by saying recently that they will cut, he will cut weapons going to the Saudi Red Coalition, and, and then he resumed uh, the, the weapons. So, and then uh, I, I hope uh, with the answers that you will find, you will know that I mean, it's just not, this is just bizarre place, uh, but actually there is like destructive, destructive international policies mm. uh, that contributed mm. to what's happening in Yemen. Mm. Well, this has been, amazing and you're amazing and I've loved getting to meet you and also just talk with you and so much um yeah I just I feel like I've known you for a long time (laughs) (laughs) it's because 
because we follow each other on Instagram. No, I don't. I don't follow yet. I'll follow. I'll follow. I'll follow. Yeah. Um, but no, I feel like I feel like I'm talking to an old friend or something. So I'm excited to to meet you in person one day soon, inshallah. Thank you so much. This conversation ends here, but we don't have to stop talking. Give us a follow on Instagram at More to Her Story Official to keep up with us there, and check back every month for new episodes. Thanks for listening.